Well, good morning, church. Good morning. It's a joy to be with you, to share the Word of God with you this morning. I feel like some of you I haven't seen in a few weeks. Uh, all my fault, being other places, downstairs, other churches. But it's good to be back home. If you would, with your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis 49. We're going to be looking at one of the final chapters in the book of Genesis. We're not going to completely finish the chapter, uh, mainly because the death of Jacob will close it out, and that'll be a different message, I believe. But in Genesis 49, we have a very interesting, I believe very impactful section of Scripture that on the surface would seem to be like, okay, what are we going to see in this? You know, this is sort of like a father on his deathbed, speaking to his kids, his sons, his grown sons, of course, old sons by our standards. Some of his sons would be well advanced in their age, um, comparative to our typical age lengths. And here Jacob is in the final hours of his life, really exhorting his kids prophetically. Now, it's a little different than what we saw last week, even with uh, the word that Eric brought, where we saw the blessing of the Lord come to Ephraim and Manasseh, Jacob's two sons that really became adopted into the family. In Genesis 49, we see not so much a blessing proclaimed over the kids, though it will be in the end proved to be by the faithfulness of God a blessing, but it's really more of a prophecy. It's a prophetic publishing of God's divine promises regarding these 12 tribes. So before we go any further, let's pray. Let's invite the Holy Spirit to lead us, to guide us, and we need his help. So Father God, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the chance, the privilege, the honor it is to gather, to worship you, to serve you, to partake of your word together. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would not only be among us, but actively working in us. Pray that you'd bring comfort, conviction, edification, a building up of the church. Let your will and your glory be accomplished in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So Genesis 49, I'm going to read through the chapter that we'll be dealing with today and sort of give us an overview quickly, and then we'll jump into it. It says, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. He says, Judah, in verse 8, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. 
The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea, and he shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Says Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills, May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. And lastly, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and in an evening dividing the spoil. Verse 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Pretty interesting as we come to this chapter, and of course, again, we saw um, last week just the blessing of God come to Ephraim and Manasseh. So the sons of Joseph, um, Jacob adopts them. He calls them his own, brings them into his family, and in so doing, really replaces the firstborn, which is Reuben, and gives the firstborn inheritance to Ephraim and Manasseh. And then Almost in the same scene, and I, I believe it is the same scene as we approach chapter 49 from what is part, you know, happening in the previous chapter to now, Jacob is sick. He's got a disease of some type. Josephus records for us that he's, he's ill with something, and of course his eyes are dim. He can't really see, uh, but he's a patriarch, and he knows that his time is very short, uh, possibly even within that very hour. So he calls his sons, he assembles his kids, his grown children, to his bedside, Joseph among them, and gives them a final word of exhortation. And I think it's so amazing to me as I look at this, because really what we see is that the greatest blessing a father can bequeath his own kids is not anything of his own so much as it's the word of God. When I think about my own role as a father, I certainly hope to do a lot of things well. 
I know that I will do some things poorly, and God's grace will make up, hopefully, for anything that I'm insufficient in, which is a, a myriad of things. I don't know if I'll leave my kids much money. I don't know what that inheritance might look like, but I do believe that the best thing that I can leave my kids is, of course, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God. If I were to die tonight, I would hope and pray that my children at the level that they're at would at least remember that their father loved the word of God and lived, hopefully, by the word of God. And Jacob here is bequeathing the greatest thing he can give his children. Now, what's interesting as we look at this, it'll become rather apparent. What Jacob has to say to some of his children is not the most desirable thing. It's not exactly what we would define as a blessing. It's not exactly what we would call great last words. Uh, Jacob has some really harsh things to say, particularly to his first three children. And we'll look at that in a moment. But ultimately, Jacob is being faithful to the spirit of God within him inspiring him and prompting him to publish a promise, some of which will not be fulfilled for another 1,600 years into the future generations of both the messianic implications of the covenant that God made with Abraham, ultimately being fulfilled uh, in Christ in the new covenant that Eric was even referencing earlier. And then some of them will be fulfilled in a much shorter time frame, but ultimately they all sort of point to the fullness of the gospel. Revelation 19 reminds us that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And in Genesis 49, what we see here going on is the first recorded instance of a man under the inspiration of the spirit publishing prophetic words of God to other men. Now, of course, we've had prophecies, quite a few, in the book of Genesis, even as early as chapter 3. Uh, but yet, this is the first time that God has inspired a man through the Spirit to speak to other men prophetically of what would come in the future days. So it's very interesting. It's really a turning point in the book of Genesis as Jacob takes upon himself in his final hour the mantle of a prophet. And I think that sets for us really uh, an outline for this whole chapter that I think is hopefully helpful and sort of gives us a backdrop to the scene. There's three elements that form... Jacob's role in the final hours of his life. First, we see that Jacob deals with and speaks to the past in his kids as a patriarch. Jacob has this role of patriarch. Patriarch is not a common term that we like to throw around today, but it's entirely biblical, and it's entirely of the Lord. And it references the authority one has in his home to be the godly head, to be the leader of the family, to be the one that models and follows Jesus Christ and becomes a model for his family, becomes a model for his kids, becomes a model for others of what that image looks like, what a vision of that should be. And Jacob, through all of his life, all of the years of difficulty, all of the years of unbelief, has arrived at a place where he is legitimately a patriarch. But rather, if you recall in Genesis 35, a turning point happened in the life of Jacob, where really Jacob's life in a synopsis could be described, at least uh, based on my own convictions, of a man that most of his days was seeking the blessing of God, only to realize that he couldn't attain it in his flesh, but rather needed to obtain it 
by the grace of God. And Jacob's whole life sort of hits a collision with the Lord when he realizes in Genesis both 32 and then in 35 as he wrestles with the Lord and then is renamed Israel for the final time in Genesis 35 that the Lord has been the whole time seeking to honor the covenant he made with his fathers to bless this man who's really his whole life been running from his consequences of his own deceptive actions, seeking to attain, seeking to manipulate, seeking to get for himself what the whole time the Lord wanted to give him by faith. And Jacob's life is really a great picture of this. But yet in the final hours of his life, he is a settled man. He's not running. He's been in Egypt now 17 years. He's carried the mantle of Israel for the you know, last 20 or more years well. He's led his family uh, much better than he did before. And he's really taken on the role uh, in a legitimate sense of the word of a patriarch. And as a patriarch, he has the authority to speak to the past actions of his children. And we'll see him do that in a moment. The second thing we see by way of an outline is that Jacob deals with and speaks to the present as a parent. Jacob is a patriarch, but Jacob is also a parent, really wrapped up in the same meaning. Jacob is a parent to his sons, and we don't tend to think of this in our modern day, but Jacob is, of course, 100-something years old, and his sons are probably, many of them, in their 70s or uh, possibly even older, you know, rough estimates here. Uh, these are not young children, and yet you never stop being a parent. Your role changes, of course, as your kids grow up but you're always a parent. You're always a parent in your heart. And Jacob is very much in this final hour of his life speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit of God as a parent. And you can put yourself, if you're a parent, in his shoes quite readily and probably in some measure or fashion identify with the heart-throbbing impact of what he had to say to some of his kids and what he's going to say to some other of his kids. And you can sort of relate to Jacob on that level, not only as a patriarch dealing with the past, but as a parent dealing with the present. And then lastly, and possibly most importantly in this final scene, Jacob speaks to the future as a prophet. Jacob takes the role for the first time given to him by the Lord under the inspiration of the Spirit of God and speaks to his kids' future, not simply as a patriarch, not simply as a parent, but as a man moved by the Holy Spirit speaking from God. So these are not just generic blessings. These are not just sweet words from a dying man to his kids. These are words that will change the trajectory of the destinies of 12 men and impact the world to this very day. So it's quite an impactful chapter. So Jacob sort of is all three of these things in this closing chapter of Genesis 49. He's patriarch, he's a parent, he's a prophet. And what I love about this is in verse 1, Jacob calls his sons, as we read, and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. You know, that's an amazing thing. Wouldn't it be awesome in a way to be able to sit around your father's dying bed uh, and be able to have your father tell you what your future looks like? That'd be pretty unique. Uh, Usually we're hoping that our father at least has some good things to say and Uh, doesn't dig up something from the past, though that will happen with a few of his sons. Spirit of God, and I think what we see very clearly 
is for the first time in Scripture, Jacob is having church. Jacob is having church. He's gathering his family around him. He's got 12 kids after all of this time. Joseph is back, uh, which has just changed his life. He's adopted his first two sons into the family. And Jacob, in his final minutes, sees tangibly a partial fulfillment of the full prophecy and promise and covenant that God made with Abraham, that he would multiply his offspring. At this point, there are roughly around 70 people. Between the close of Genesis 50 and the first chapter of Exodus, over 400 years goes by, longer than America has been a nation. At that point, the nation of Israel was estimated to be 600,000 males and over 2 million people in that 400-year span. From the end of Genesis, we're here, they're around 70, to Exodus 1. So God just continues to multiply. But in this moment, Jacob has a tangible expression in front of him through his own family of the covenant and faithfulness and goodness of God. And in so doing, he says, gather yourselves together, would be another word for assemble yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the last days. And I think what's awesome about this is that when we gather applicationally as the family of God, we understand that we are gathering, even as we are right now, as an assembly of children, sons and daughters of God. And just as Jacob gathered his own family around him and blessed them as a father, so we are here to this morning, and every time we gather as the people of God, we are the called out ones, the assembled ones, for the explicit purpose of being in fellowship, loving one another. This is exactly what Jacob is doing here. He's not just gathering his sons together for um, some snacks and sandwiches. He's about to publish the word of God to them in a way that is entirely different than anything his sons have ever experienced. So this is really, I think, one of the first instances in Scripture, in, in my own estimation, as I look at this, of really the church in seed form actually being revealed, again, from the dead and ascended to the Father. And we have been in the last days ever since. And irregardless of your eschatological convictions on what those last days may mean for you, uh, they really have to do with so much the nuance of how the Lord will come or when he will come. But I think what we should all be settled in is the reality that the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. And let that not slip our notice. That regardless of your convictions for the second coming of Christ. And that's a beautiful thing. Second Peter chapter 3 reminds us, and I just want to read it to you. I think it's important. In verse 10, he says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, but according to his promise, note that, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new town with his wife uh, at some point. He says, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom of 
given him. So really, in, in true application, we are a people, a called out assembly, living in the last days, aware that really the main thing left is Jesus' second coming, and that we are to be a people who are prepared. We are to be a people who are ready. And Jacob is readying his kids for their last days. He's readying his family for the prophetic implications of what God has sovereignly decreed over their destinies. And it's a weighty thing. So let's jump into it with Reuben. After he assembles his sons, he says, Mr. Khan artist, this is Jacob. This has been the majority of his life. And yet at some point, a turning point happened, and God got a hold of his heart in a very powerful way and gave him a different name, just as he has done through us in the gospel. Changed our heart, given us from a heart of stone to a heart of clay, put within us the spirit of the living God, sealed us for the day of redemption, and he has given us a new nature. But we still, lest we have forgotten, I don't think any of us have, we have two natures. Still in us, there exists a Jacob and an Israel, and we war with these all the time. And Jacob says to his own kids, as a father would to his own sons, you know that I have been both a Jacob and an Israel in your life. In, in Jacob, life has been pretty hard. In Jacob, it's been constant stress, constant frustration, constant, uh, really, to use the words of Paul, a kicking against the goads. But in the life of Israel, things have begun to change. And Jacob speaks to his sons, knowing that they could write him off as Jacob. But he says, no, listen to Israel, your father. Yes, I have been Jacob. But by the grace of God, as Paul would say, I am what I am, by the grace of God in 1 Corinthians He's, and Jacob really says, listen to Israel, your father. Listen to the one who has allowed the Lord to prevail in his life. And sometimes we need to remember that, you know, we have the propensity to listen to our old nature or our new nature. But the more you listen to the new nature, the more you let the Lord prevail in your life, the more you live by the power of the Spirit, uh, the more authority you will have, the more uh, impact you will make, and you will not spend your life frustrated in the flesh. And Jacob here really gives us uh, a reminder of the two wars that he fought between the life of Jacob and the life of Israel. So he calls his sons to listen to him really as Israel. And he says to Reuben in verse 3, you are my firstborn. Reuben means literally a vision of the sun. He was the firstborn. So in, in ancient culture, the firstborn was a big deal. And I'm the firstborn in my family. Some of you are. Uh, and in our day, it's kind of like, yeah, the firstborn. You know, usually the firstborns are like control freaks and, you know, just big jerks. Um, I was kind of a big jerk as a firstborn, just totally controlling. I'm still a jerk, but, you know, it depends who you talk to. But Reuben here is the firstborn, and he is really the, the preeminent one in the family. He's the one that had the most potential. The most promised, because he's the firstborn, the firstborn of Leah. After Leah was uh, wailing for a, a son so that Jacob would love her. And God gives her Reuben. And Reuben is really the vision of the son. And I think so often our firstborn, we, we put and attach so much promise and so much potential. And we usually win the hardest. And we usually make life really hard on the firstborn because we want the firstborn to turn out right. That's often the case, just in general terms. And, and Reuben was no exception in the family. 
And yet Reuben made a fatal mistake. Reuben, in Genesis 35:22, slept with Billa, his father's concubine, almost as uh, a tag-on sentence to the great chapter of Genesis 35, where all these great things are happening for Jacob, and then at the end of it, it says that Reuben slept with Billa, and Jacob heard of it. That was 40 years ago at this point. 40 years ago, Reuben did this. 40 years ago. I'm not even 40. And that's a long time. And now, at the worst moment imaginable, it comes out. Jacob, of course, knew it the whole time. I just am so curious if Jacob, hearing of it 40 years ago, was just crying out that his son would at least come clean. His son would at least repent. His son would at least come to him and before this moment and say, I have greatly sinned before the Lord. And possibly things could have been different for Reuben. But Reuben had a fatal sin that the consequences were very steep. First uh, Chronicles chapter 5, the first two verses, reminds us that the birthright and the inheritance that Reuben had as the firstborn passed on to Ephraim and Manasseh. And he swapped places with Reuben. And I think Reuben paints for us a vivid picture and a reminder of really a life that had tremendous potential and power, but it had been lost to the destructive nature of sexual sin. And so many times, and you hear of it, and it's, it's a, it ought to be a great fear in our lives, that we would be guarded from and kept by the power of God. So many powerful men and women of God, and particularly men, have fallen prey to sexual sin. And what it's done is it's disqualified them from the impact and the potential they could have had in the grace of God to make an impact on the world. And it's disqualified them. And with Reuben, you say, well, why is he so harsh with Reuben? I mean, we're going to get into some other sons who did equally as heinous things, if not more so, and they seem to have a different outcome. But Reuben, ultimately for us, is, is one with great potential, but the vision of the Son in his life, and for us, applicationally, the vision of Christ that we're to exhibit in the world will be marred and greatly affected uh, if we sin in this particular way. It's a sin, Paul says, against ourselves in 1 Corinthians 6. It's a sin that has devastating consequences. It's a sin that ruins families. It's a sin that ruins churches. It's a sin that ruins men's lives every single day. But the interesting and tragic element is that Reuben had 40 years to come clean to his father. He didn't have to wait till the deathbed of his dad to have this come out. And in like fashion, if sexual sin is a stronghold in your life, you don't have to wait another minute to repent. You don't have to wait another day to go to your father and say, Lord, let this not disqualify me from the race. Let this not mar the image of Christ in my life. Let it not cloud and break the glass that other people should be seeing a vision of Jesus. Let it not be that for me. Let it not be a disqualifying sin. For Reuben it was, I believe, because he never repented. And Jacob calls him out uh, in a prophetic way. And again, let's trace the grace of God here. The sexual sin of Reuben did not disqualify him from being in the family of God. But it did disqualify him from his position in the family. It did disqualify him from the role that he had and could have played in the family as the firstborn, as the preeminent one, 
as the one that was the first fruits of Jacob's strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. And often, like you look at the life of Samson and how strong he was, and yet the wiles of a harlot broke him. And it's always that way. Often, uh, men of God will be brought down by a seemingly insignificant thing, and they're strong in power in so many other ways, but yet the little thing that sneaks in is what trips him up. And this is the sad case of Reuben, who I really believe could have sought repentance years before, and healing could have happened, and forgiveness possibly could have happened, and certainly would have happened, and, and things could have been different for Reuben, but he waited 40 years, and it came out, because your sin will find you out, Exodus reminds us. Your sin will find you out. So Reuben here is really a son who is still a member of the family, but will never really amount to much, will never really become what he was envisioned to become because of this snare, this one-minute decision to sin with his body, to defile his father's bed, and here, in the worst moment imaginable, gets called out and, and has a steep consequence as a result. We go on, things don't get a whole lot better here in chapter, in verse 5, as he goes on to the next two, he says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Now, this is interesting. Simeon and Levi, again, all these are Leah's kids, the first three, um, mean, literally, Simeon means herd. It's the root of the word Shema in Hebrew, where we get the great Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Uh, so, so Simeon has at its root this idea of being heard, uh, this proclamation. And I think Simeon's character would seem to indicate that he was a person that needed to be heard. He was a person, you know, people in your life that, you know, they, they just need to be heard. They need the final word. They need to have the say in the matter. Simeon was that kind of guy. He was just, my voice will prevail. I will be heard. Interestingly, Levi is one whose name means joined. And when you get someone that wants to join with someone that wants to be heard, you have an interesting recipe for disaster. And this is what happens with these two brothers, Simeon and Levi. They're brothers who one wants to be heard and one wants to just join the fight. And they become, in the, the defilement of Dinah, they wipe out all of the men of Shechem. They didn't just take justice into their own hands. They avenged their sister in a vengeful manner. Jacob describes it and he says, uh, their instruments are weapons of violence, are their swords. He says, let my soul not come into their counsel. He says, oh my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger, they killed men. And in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. So they didn't just go after the men. They, they slaughtered the animals. I mean, they, their cruelty went way overboard, way over its banks. And this is what happens when the flesh takes over in our lives, when we demand that we're heard and we get people to join us. All of the divisions in the Bible happen the same way, where there was a leader who demanded his own rights against the will of God, and people just joined him. And all of a sudden, bloodbaths happen. You think of Korah, uh, the rebellion of Korah, and, and just how the ground opened up and swallowed these men alive. Uh, as they defied Moses and, and said, who are you? And God dealt with them severely. Now, interestingly, Simeon is another son who we see sort of doesn't amount to a whole lot after this. God gives him this prophetic word. Um, 
And we see that these two characteristics, you know, they band together in violence to rectify and avenge the defilement of their sister by the prince of Shechem. They proved to be a violent bunch fueled by anger and cruelty. Simeon, as a tribe, would eventually be absorbed into the tribe of Judah. And if you have a map in the back of your Bible, which you may or may not, you should if you have a good Bible, <laughs> calling out your Bibles. If you don't have a real Bible, get a real Bible. But if you have a map in the back of your Bible, Simeon is in the middle of Judah. So Simeon is at some point going to become a pretty small tribe, get absorbed by Judah. They're still going to remain a tribe. So again, God's grace, we're going to see, prevails over all of these situations. He doesn't just wipe out Simeon. But Simeon is not, again, going to be a mighty force in the prophetic picture of what God is doing through Israel. They're still going to be a, a, a member of the family, just like Reuben. They're still going to have a tribe but they're going to sort of eventually dwindle down. Their numbers will get weaker, and they will get absorbed into Judah. Now, now Levi is an interesting thing. Levi, you say, well, okay, so what happens with Levi? But Levi, as Eric already said, and if you know your Bible, will note that they become a priest, a line of priests to the Lord. How did that happen? How did Levi go from being like Simeon to being a line of priests. You know, it says in Numbers chapter 1, verse 47 through 54, that the Lord would be their portion, that Levi would not get an actual allotment in the land of Israel, but that they would be scattered, which is the end of the prophecy in verse 7, that they will divide in Jacob and God will scatter them in Israel. So God is going to scatter Levi like seed. They're going to be sown among the people of God in such a way that their allotment will not be a particular section of land like all the other tribes. It will be among all the other tribes. And they will act and serve as temple priests and really in, in, in a modern sense as pastors among the people. They will become a holy, de dedicated, devoted people to the Lord and the Lord will be their portion. And it's interesting if you um, look at Exodus chapter 32, if you want to turn there, in Exodus chapter 32, it shows us exactly how this comes about. A very interesting thing. In Exodus chapter 32, verse 25, you have the incident of the golden calf. This is a pretty horrible moment in Israel's history where Aaron, you know, causes the people to sin greatly, takes all their earrings, melts them down, creates a golden calf because Moses has been up on Sinai for 40 days. They think he died. People are like, you rule over us. We need a new God. That whole narrative. Well, in the middle of that, in verse 25, and it says, And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, meaning cut off restraint, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And in fitting character as Levites, those who want to be joined, all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And it says, And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. Wow. The sons of Levi did, according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you have been ordained. This is quite an ordination service. Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord. 
each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. So God ends up choosing the tribe of Levi after this action of righteousness. You say, how is that righteousness? I mean, they go from being men of violence, killing a whole group of men, to doing really the same thing, but yet it was in obedience to the Lord. They joined literally themselves to the Lord. They didn't join themselves to each other like they did in, in the defilement of Dinah. Simeon and Levi didn't band together as their own vigilante group and just take justice in their own hands. God said that was profane. But when they join themselves to the Lord and execute righteousness and really figuratively take the sword, which is a symbolic picture of the word of God, and execute righteousness with the sword, God says, you are ordained to me. You have joined yourself to me. You have proven righteous in my sight. I will bless you. And this is, this is the difference between Simeon and Levi in their prophetic uh, outworkings. Uh, Levi would become a tribe of priests. They would become people that the Lord would draw to himself, call his own, join to himself. And in the same way, really the same way, Jesus calls us to follow him in such a fervor that our love for the Lord would be in comparison like hatred to our family. doesn't mean we hate our family. It means that in comparison to the devotion we have, the joining we have to the Lord in spirit, the comparison would be like hatred to our family and those around us, and that we would be like Levi, a tribe of priests. And Peter reminds us that we are and we have become under the blood of Christ, a people called out, a chosen race in First Peter 2, a royal priesthood for his own possession, just like Levi was. A very interesting thing. So Levi gets a blessing. Simeon really amounts to nothing. And the difference is in who are you joined to. You know, it's not so much about what you did in the past. You might have been a violent, cruel man in your past. But God says, join yourself to me. What's interesting about Christian manhood, too, is God makes you a certain way. And we're not to be men of violence. But if you have a fight in you, which if you're a man, you probably do, God has put that there. He wants to have that fight surrendered and joined to him. If you take the fight that's in you and you submit it to the power of the Holy Spirit, and you say, Lord, your will be done, not mine. I'm not my own justice system. I'm not my own vigilante. I'm not Denzel Washington taking things on the streets, doing my own thing. That's all fake. That's all baloney. God says, you surrender your heart to me, and you'll be much more effective than doing things your own way. And if you join yourself to me, I will call you out as a priest, and you will become a blessing to the people of God instead of doing things in the power of your own hands. Instead of being a violent man, you'll be a blessed man. You'll be a man, as Psalm 1 describes, that sits uh, by the streams with rooted uh, with your roots deep into the soil, abiding in the word of God, bearing fruit in its season. So Levi and Simeon have very different outcomes, very different trajectories in terms of what God prophesies for them. And, and we see that connection there uh, in the book of Exodus, very interesting. So again, we have been called to the same thing. And we come to verse 8, we see Judah. Now Judah really becomes, in, in many senses, the highlight of this whole narrative, this whole prophetic outworking, because Judah, of course, is going to be where the Messiah comes from. Judah is going to be 
where the Messiah comes from. And that in itself is quite astounding. Judah, he says in verse 8, your brothers shall praise you, really is just literally what his name means. Judah means to confess, to praise the Lord. And it was a response again to his name at birth that he would be one who brought the confession and praise of God. Uh, and, and Jacob, he says, your brothers shall praise you. Now, this is really fascinating because Joseph, like, literally just lived this, like, a couple chapters ago where his brothers bowed down to him and, and didn't worship him, of course, but they bowed down to him and they paid tribute to him and everything that was in his dreams came true there in the fullness of God's plan. But yet Judah here is going to have a much greater impact than Joseph. Now, it's fascinating to me because in Psalm 78, and I just referenced this quickly, Psalm 78 is a chronicle of the people of God. And it says in verse 67 that, speaking of the Lord, he rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Of course, speaking of David, but then prophetically speaking of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would come from the line of David, uh, this is an amazing prophecy of Judah. It says, Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. So Judah's banner, its identity, would, that be of, would be that of a lion. Judah would have an amazing, peculiar, but wonderful portion among the tribes of Israel. Not only would they carry the line and seed of David, but ultimately the Messiah. And from the tribe of Judah would, of course, come what we're all very familiar with, the phrase, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And it's an amazing prophecy how the grace of God does things that we would never fathom. And the grace of God can take a tribe which had an extremely storied past. Think of Judah. Think of his sin with Tamar. Think of his conspiring against Joseph. I mean, I mean, the dude was not a good man. And yet God in his grace says, you know what? I got plans for this tribe. I'm going somewhere with this tribe. And its storied past will not prevent the providence of God from prevailing. And through Judah, some 1,600 years later would come the Messiah. Pretty amazing. Some 600 years later would come David. And this is the story of Judah. And it really is the highlight of this chapter as we look at the prophetic and messianic implications of what is going on as Jacob blesses his sons. He says that the scepter, in verse 10, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. And when it speaks of the scepter not departing from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Israel was, for all of its history, a self-governed people. Even when they fell under exile and under Babylonian captivity, they still had a prince 
among them, such as Daniel. They still were able, even in captive places, to sort of self-govern. One of the chief characteristics of that right was the ability to execute capital punishment. Well, in AD 7, the Romans took that away for the first time in their history. They took away their ability to self-govern, and they, and they no longer had the ability to say in their own minds that the scepter shall not depart from Judah until tribute comes to him. The ESV says tribute. You might have Shiloh, which is the only instance in Scripture where it's, where it's used there, and it's prophetic of the Messiah. It speaks of to him to whom it belongs, meaning the right to rule. Until the one whose right it is to rule comes, we will have the ability to self-govern. Well, Jewish history says in AD 7 that the priests and the people went out into the streets when Rome took their ability to self-govern away and said, the prophecy has been null and void, and they wept in the streets because they said the Messiah has not yet come. And yet Jesus was born a few years prior, and they didn't see it. Jesus was in their midst. The Messiah had been born, but to the Jewish people blind to this at this time, they saw this prophecy as, as being illegitimate, as null and void, and yet Jesus would change it all. So interesting little tidbit of history there as we see this prophecy coming true and bearing its ultimate completion in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is, as Revelation 5 says, the line of the tribe of Judah. I love that. I love that the Lord gave such grace to Judah because he gives the same grace to us, who all of us in some measure have storied pasts, and yet God says, I have plans for you. I keep going in and out. I don't know why, but it is what it is. So Judah is the tribe through which Jesus comes. And in verse 13, it says, Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea, and he shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Interesting here as we move forward, Zebulun means habitation. Now, not a whole lot to really be said about Zebulun except that it was near Naphtali. It was on the northwestern portion of the Sea of Galilee. And it was in between the Mediterranean and the Sea of Galilee. So they were known for uh, dwelling by the shore of the sea and, and being fishermen, really. And interestingly, Isaiah reminds us regarding Zebulun. This is an interesting thing. In Isaiah chapter 9, it says in verse 1, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Check this out. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they were glad when they divide the spoil. What he's speaking of prophetically there in Isaiah, and he's going to reference it again in Matthew chapter 4. You can check it out. The ministry of Jesus was primarily spent in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, which was predominantly Gentile. And it's interesting, if you look up Galilee, it literally means circle of the heathen. This is what Jesus spent most of his ministry doing 
breaking forth the light of God, the kingdom of God, into the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali some 1,600 years later. So these sort of, not much is said about them here. They don't seem to have a whole lot of either negative or positive said, and yet Jesus would come onto the scene, and he would spend most of his time there. He would habitate in Zebulun. He would dwell among Naphtali. What an amazing thing. Issachar, again, is his name means recompense or reward. Not a whole lot, really, with Issachar. There's not a lot historically about him, other than that, of course, he's a tribe. He seems to be one who found uh, the land to be pleasant and just started working, started tilling the ground, started farming, and just kind of like a regular Joe. Dan, it says in verse 16, shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. And Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. Interesting, he says, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Dan simply means he that judges. So from Dan comes Samson. Samson came from the tribe of Dan. He's one of Israel's greatest judges. Yet the tribe would later fall headlong into idolatry. They would become a center of idolatry in the nation. And of course, Samson didn't have the greatest ending in his own life due to his sexual immorality uh, and just his, his wantonness in that way, his licentiousness. And at the end of that, Dan, the prophecy of Dan, Jacob says, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Literally translated because salvation is the word for Yeshua, which is the Hebrew word for Jesus. Jacob is crying out, I wait for Jesus. I wait for Jesus. And what's interesting in that is that in the midst of the imperfect justice of the time of the judges, when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, when it seemed like there was no justice, when it seemed like that the land was full of just vigilante justice, and even the judges that had been raised up uh, were not able to maintain long-term peace. Jacob prophetically in his spirit, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, cries out and says, I wait for Jesus. And perhaps in your life you feel like, man, just you look at the world around you and it's unequivocally everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. And we cry out and say, we wait for Jesus. We wait for Jesus, the one who will bring true justice, the one who will set up camp in Jerusalem and bring a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So I think just an amazing kind of tagline that just is the spirit of Jacob in his final hours crying out saying, we wait for Jesus because that is where justice will be served. In, in this present day, we have inequality and all kinds of things that are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but we are waiting for the Lord to bring all things under his feet. And Jacob here cries out in that regard. Moving on, we have a few more quickly. We have Gad. It says, Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Gad simply means a troop. What I find interesting about this man's prophecy is that it said that he will be invaded often, but he will invade back. I love that. He's kind of like the Rocky of the sons. He just keeps getting beat down, and he just keeps getting back up. Proverbs 24, 16 says, For the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. So this guy would simply be, not much is said, but he's like, his dad's like, I know this guy. He's going to get invaded. He's going to get attacked. He's going to get plundered. But then he's going to chase his enemies by their heels. He's not going to be defeated. He's not going to be overcome. And, you know, as people of God, we overcome by the blood of Jesus, the testimony of Jesus and the blood of the Lamb. We are people that overcome. 
And we might have setbacks. We might get kicked down. We might get knocked down. We might get punched in the face. But we are a people of God who, by the grace of God, get back up the eighth time and say, we're not done. We are not defeated. We are more than conquerors. So Gad really is, I think, a, a kind of a neat picture of that. Asher here, food shall be rich. He shall yield royal delicacies. His name means happiness, befits his prophecy. Naphtali is again, we already touched on him with uh, Zebulun, but he's a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. His name means mighty wrestlings. And it's interesting that Jesus, again, Matthew says, would spend his time in Zebulun and Naphtali. And you know, there was a mighty wrestling in that place when Jesus walked on the earth. Uh, things were not the same after that. The kingdom of God was breaking forth in their midst. And here Naphtali is, excuse me, again described in these terms. And then coming to the end here, Joseph, certainly, you know, not even last but not least. Joseph here means increase in addition. Just a quick thing on Joseph's life. It's been well preached over the last 10 weeks. Joseph's life proves that we can be fruitful in affliction. Joseph's life proves to us that we can be fruitful in pain, that pain has gain for the believer. And this is one of the highlights of Joseph's life, let alone being a picture of Jesus. But I believe that through Joseph's life, in the final hour of Jacob's life, he became the means, Joseph became the means through which Jacob entered into a fuller and richer and more intimate understanding of God the Father. I really believe that because what Joseph, Jacob, excuse me, says of Joseph is quite rich. He says he's a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved, his arms were made agile, and by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is, note this, the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills." And, you know, it's so fitting because Jesus came to reveal to us the Father. It says in John 1.18, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Colossians says that he is the image of the invisible God in Colossians 1.15. So Joseph, I believe, was the final way that God proved his love to Jacob. In the whole narrative of Joseph's life, bringing him back to his father, proved to Jacob and solidified the covenant that he made and really just like Jesus was the final word to us of the father's love. Joseph became the ultimate balm over what was Jacob's life, a troubled and distressed existence. And Jesus is that for us. Jesus makes known, reveals the love of the father and becomes for us the final word, Hebrews 1 says, of the Father to us. He is the final word that the Father loves us. And I think Joseph and Jacob's life had a mighty impact through his righteousness and character of solidifying this covenant relationship that God the Father had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 
And it really crescendoed in this moment where Jacob says, I know the Father better because of the life of Joseph. And we know God because of the life of Jesus. He is to us our Joseph. Lastly, and I know we're going a little long, we'll wrap this up here. A few more minutes. says, Benjamin, son of my right hand. He's the last one spoken about. He says he's a ravenous wolf. Now, Benjamin isn't a whole lot said other than that. He divides in the evening the spoil. But Saul of Tarsus came out of Benjamin. He was a Benjamite. And Saul was a ravenous wolf. He was one who, it says literally in the book of Acts, I think in chapter 9, ravaged, it's a pretty strong graphic language there, ravaged the church of Jesus Christ as a wolf, thinking he was doing the Father's bidding. And God says of Benjamin, he's a ravenous wolf, but yet through that ravenous wolf, God met Saul on the road to Damascus and took a wolf and made him into a lamb. And he became one of the greatest shepherds in the history of the church. And God can do that all by his grace. So what looks like a wolf becomes a sheep. And this is the prophecy of Benjamin. And I think it reached its full culmination in the life of Paul, going from Saul to Paul by the grace of God. So all these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. I think as we close out this chapter, sometimes we need to remember as we look at these varied prophetic blessings, we say, well, where do, where do we fit into that? You know, Ephesians 1 reminds us that we have all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. He has blessed us richly. He has lavished his grace upon us. And I think sometimes what is most helpful as people of God is to remember that we are in the family. We are in the family. And regardless of what you're presently going through, you belong to the family of God. You are blessed by the Father through the Son, and you carry the inheritance of Jesus Christ on your life. And regardless of your portion, regardless of your lot, regardless of your circumstance, you have a place in the family of God. And I think Genesis 49 paints that picture for us. So with that, let's pray and we'll close it out. So Father God, thank you for your word. Father, help us to rejoice in just the simplicity that we are your kids. Lord, the trajectories and destinies of each of our lives are in your hands and they're safe there. You have good planned for each of us by grace as we trust you, Lord. Help us to rejoice in the fact that our position is secure. Our privileges come through Christ. It's not about rank. It's not about who's first. In your kingdom, the last shall be first. And the wolves will be turned into lambs. And many of us, that's our story because of the grace of God. So we commit our lives to you. We give you praise that we belong to you. Fill our hearts with thankfulness. Fill our hearts with joy. Fill our hearts with contentment that we are yours and you are ours. And we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen.